Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. I'm Bill Yates, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal, and today we will be discussing the article, A Muscle Activity-Dependent Gain Between Motor Cortex and EMG. This article was chosen for January's issue of APS Select, a collection of the best original research published by the American Physiological Society. Before we begin, let's meet our guests. Hi, my name is Stephanie Nafel-Thacker. I'm currently a government contractor for DARPA, where I work as a neurotech advisor. All of the views expressed here are my own and focus on my graduate work from Northwestern University, where my expertise was in brain-machine interfaces and the neural control of movement. I'm Josh Glazer. I'm currently a postdoc at Columbia University, and I was previously a PhD student also at Northwestern, where we worked on this paper, and I specialize in applying machine learning to neuroscience. Hi, Bill. I'm Lee Miller. I'm the PI of the Miller Lim Lab at Northwestern University, and I'm also the president of the Society for the Neural Control of Movement, and I had the privilege of working with these two folks who are, of course, the ones who really did the work that made this paper possible. Could you explain the concept of the motor system operating range and why it presents an interesting problem? Sure. What we often take for granted about the motor system is that it affords us the ability to perform drastically different tasks on a regular basis. So the gentle movements needed to leaf through a textbook, for example, are very different than the high force I would use to push open a heavy door. Now, what's interesting about the motor cortex is that the observed neurons have a very limited operating range. This doesn't seem to account for both the sensitivity you need to produce the very small forces, nor the strength to produce those very large forces. It could be that we just need to average a lot of noisy neurons in a linear combination. But on the other hand, maybe the system requires a significant nonlinearity. How did you investigate the relationship between activity and primary motor cortex and muscles? We first trained monkeys to perform three dynamically different tasks involving movements or torques about the wrist. The first was an isometric task where the hand wasn't moving, but the muscles were producing large force. The second was a movement task where the hand was moving about the wrist, but very low forces were applied. And finally, we had a spring task where the hand was moving and was also producing force to account for an elastic load. During these experiments, we recorded both neural activity from motor cortex and muscle activity simultaneously. The important thing about these different tasks that Stephanie just described is that they force the muscles to cover quite a different range of forces that they are producing in order to make the different kinds of movements that she described. And also, the muscles themselves contract differently so that there are force length kinds of properties in muscles and force velocity properties. And these are all things that complicate the relationship between what a person might want to do and the forces that are actually produced. And it's this different range of forces and types of movements that we were studying that made this study different from many of them that have been done before in this kind of a BMI context. So in order to try to understand this mapping between the activity of neurons and motor cortex and the output of the muscle, their EMGs, we built what are called decoders in the BCI literature, which really are just algorithms that predict some output, in our case, EMGs from the neural activity. So we started with using a linear decoder, which has often worked well for other researchers in the past when they've used a single task, which doesn't have as wide of a range of forces. And what I mean by a linear decoder is just a linear mapping from the output of the neurons to the muscles. 
So we wanted to see, in our case, does this work when we're using these multiple different tasks, which has this wide range of forces. And after finding that this linear decoder didn't work extremely well, which we'll get into shortly, I'm sure, we constructed several nonlinear decoders that could better explain the very large range of EMGs that we saw. What were your findings? So we first demonstrated that a motor decoder, as Josh described, trained on one task, such as the isometric one, really didn't do well at making predictions for muscles on a different task, like the movement one. And this was true whether we used just a simple linear decoder or something nonlinear like a neural network. I mentioned there was a large range of forces across these tasks. It was actually quite large. It was, I'd say, five to ten-fold difference between the movement task that Steph described and the isometric or the spring task. Generalization across these tasks was not only not very good, it was terrible. Even when we tried training this linear model with data from all the tasks, it badly overshot the tasks that required a little amount of activity, and it badly undershot the tasks that required quite a lot of activity. It was interesting, we could literally just squish or expand the predictions that we'd plotted using Adobe Illustrator, and they matched a lot better. So that gave us an insight that there was something nonlinear going on. So we then wanted to essentially quantify this intuition better, that there was some kind of scaling error that was different between the different conditions of the task when the monkey needed to make different forces. So we built what we called in the paper as the variable gain model, which essentially had two components. It first just had the standard linear decoder that we had been using, which was just a linear mapping that was the same across all conditions of the task. So regardless of the force the monkey needed to make on that trial, there was the same linear mapping. But then there was this extra multiplicative gain afterwards that was a free parameter that we fit individually for every single condition of the task. So the conditions of the task were the different targets that they needed to reach to, which had different forces. And like Steph and Lee said before, whether it was a movement, so not pushing against a spring or pushing against a large spring. So all the things that produce the wide ranges of forces. And so within this model, it allowed us to then quantify how much of the EMG output was due to the linear component and how much was due to this nonlinear multiplicative gain afterwards. And so when we actually looked at the fits to this model, we actually were pretty surprised at the magnitude of the effect of this nonlinear gain afterwards. So it often was even larger than the effect of the linear component. So as some example, let's say when producing the smallest force to the largest force, the portion of the neural activity going through the neural component may be increased by a factor of three, but the increase in the gain, this nonlinear component, might have increased by a factor of five. This is just one example. Just showing that if there had been no gain, this linear mapping only would have been able to account for a fraction of the total amount of EMG that was used. So one other final small thing about the models without getting into too much detail is we want to explore this nonlinearity a little more beyond just saying there is a large one. And so we had built several additional models, which you can look into the paper if you want the details. But one finding was that the gain seemed to explain the data better when it happened over the longer time scale, over the course of a trial, rather than instantaneously. And this is relevant because it can help explain 
For example, if I'm thinking that I'm going to need a large force, it can enhance neural activity over a longer period of time instead of just instantly for one small moment. You can think about it a little bit like having a car with power brakes that know what you want to do so that somehow they have an intuition that you just want to put a little tap on the brakes or perhaps you need to put them on and stop as quickly as you can and they help you appropriately. It's a great analogy. What are the implications of your finding for brain-computer interfaces? Well, it's very common in BCI research to develop and test algorithms under a very limited set of experimental conditions. And this sort of testing doesn't really represent what an actual user would want to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Our findings show that these types of motor decoders, unfortunately, don't really perform well when you apply them to a new and dynamically different task. So our findings suggest that if we really want to develop BCI algorithms that are generalizable and more widely applicable, they should, first of all, be very robustly trained with tasks that span the gamut of what muscles can actually do. And we hope that these results take us one step closer to the development of decoders that work in real-life environments and out-of-the-lab scenarios. One additional thing to add is, along with needing to be trained on a wide range, like Steph just said, I think our work has shown that it is important that the decoders need to have some nonlinearity in them that can better represent the true mapping from the brain to the muscles or whatever output is produced across all these different conditions used in everyday life. There's actually a little bit of a subtlety there in what Josh has just said. Not only do we anticipate that the system will need some kind of nonlinearity like we found in order to operate adequately at all, we also anticipate that our decoder will need to imitate what actually happens in the normal nervous system in order for it to feel natural to the user. What are the next steps of your work? I think one of the most important things for us to move on to experimentally is to actually test these concepts of the development of more complicated nonlinear decoders that can be applied to a range of freeform movements. My lab has now developed the means to record wirelessly from monkeys in their home cages, and we're beginning to explore the relationship between brain activity and muscle activity within this very natural setting. And we're hoping to use it as a real test of these kinds of principles. The other question that is of great interest is where this nonlinearity is actually coming from. In the paper, we suggest that there are several mechanisms within the spinal cord that might mediate it. But on the other hand, it may also arise from cortical properties. So there are some additional experiments using pharmacological approaches as well, perhaps, as other quantitative computational approaches that we might use to be able to shed some light on these mechanisms, the effect of which these experiments have revealed. And finally, Lee, you mentioned that you are the president of the Society for the Neural Control of Movement. The society is having an upcoming meeting in Japan in April, and the Journal of Neurophysiology is going to be a sponsor of that meeting. Can you tell us a little bit more about the meeting and what people should expect to see there? Sure. I'll note, historically, NCM teamed up with the Journal of Neurophysiology last year as well for our meeting in Santa Fe. Uh, teaming that we were actually quite pleased with, and we're pleased to do it again in what will be our first ever meeting in Asia. 
The meeting takes place from April 24 to 27 in Toyama City, which is on the Toyama Bay. And when we first explored that area, they were happy to tell us that they have the best sushi in Japan because of the particular properties of the bay. So we're very much looking forward to that as well as the science of the meeting. The NCM board has just completed the ranking of our proposals, and the preliminary program will be announced quite soon. Prior to the main meeting, Tadashi Isa, Daichi Nozaki, and Jun Izawa have organized a satellite meeting that will also be held in Toyama, entitled Predictive Coding and Active Inference to Know and Explore the World. There's a lot of robotics research represented within Toyama, but in Japan generally as well, within the neuroscience community. So that'll be a significant part of this satellite. Prior yet to the satellite, there will be meetings organized in Tokyo and Kyoto by Kazuhiko Seki and Tadashi Iza, and these will focus on hand and eye movements respectively. The call for poster abstracts for the main meeting will remain open until February 25, so please plan to come and join us. I'd like to thank our guests for participating in today's discussion of the article, A Muscle Activity-Dependent Game Between Motor Cortex and EMG, part of the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Thank you.